I said lunch not launch. Television, pop culture. It's where you find it. Strom, welcome to the show. It's time for another podcast, live broadcast, whatever you want to call it, of us talking about nothing but uh, film, television, pop culture type news and stuff. Uh, a lot of times I do this show with Stephen the Pop Culture Zealot, but he's not available. He's at another concert. He's been going to a lot of concerts lately, and frankly, I'm worried about his hearing. Because you can't go to that many concerts in a row without your hearing being permanently damaged. He went to Metallica, he's gone to U2, he went to something else, and now he's going to another concert, which I have no idea what it was, uh, or what it is, I should speak in the proper tense, um, and I'm worried he's going to go deaf. But anyway, enough about Steven, I'm here, but also, I have here a guest with me, Adam Sexton. Hey, Adam, are you there? I am here. All right, Adam. Hello. Welcome to the show. And let me just tell uh, listeners this, that you are on Skype via your phone. So that's why you sound like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's why Adam sounds like this. Just so you guys know, he's calling from his phone. But you know what? It's okay. The last episode, I did an E3 show with Bill where he was driving in his car the entire time. So, hey, it happens, right? Hey, listen, Jason, we can all have like super-duper uh, high-quality uh, sound setups like you do. Yes, fancy uh, state-of-the-art sound systems. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that Patreon money has to go somewhere. <laughs> yeah. That's where it's going. Yeah, I know. But thank I... you. Thank you for inviting me, sir. It's always a, a, a privilege to uh, come and be on uh, what is pretty much my favorite podcast. So thank you for giving me the invite. Oh, thank you, Adam. I didn't realize this is your favorite podcast. Because, you know, there's a world of other podcasts there. So to be a favorite, that's pretty good. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. So we had all sorts of interesting news this week. But before that, I wanted to say that I binged watched the entire season of Glow on Netflix before the show. Are you aware of what that is, Adam? I have heard of it, but I have not yet watched it. 
Okay, back in the 80s, I believe it was 1986, there was a TV show that would come on right after Saturday morning cartoons called Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, with it, which was a bunch of women as different characters wrestling in the ring. There was the good girls and the bad girls. And I don't remember my age. I might have been 13 or 14, but I watched it. And it was ridiculous and cheesy, but it was women, gorgeous women wrestling, some scary women, but it was women having a good time wrestling and playing characters and stuff. But anyway, they've made a Netflix series based on that idea. It's not exactly historically accurate, but they've kind of run with the idea and created a new show out of it. You know what I'm saying? There was actually a documentary on Netflix about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. If you watch it, it tells you all about the women and how it came to be and stuff. So you can kind of see after watching that documentary and watching the new series, how they took a lot of ideas from it and made it into their own thing. So there are similarities of course, but it's not, exactly based on it you know and they're diff- you know there's characters instead of names of the people who are actually in- on the show but it is very right. interesting and it takes place in the 80s and it's got a great soundtrack Allison Brie is the star and she's really good in it and it the series is a lot of fun uh, I couldn't stop watching it it's only it's 10 episodes with they're roughly about 30 minutes each or maybe a little bit more 35 38 minutes or something but you could blow through it in an afternoon easily and um I thought it was a lot of fun and I highly recommend it. It's a very funny show too. Allison Brie doesn't strike me as a wrestling type is this one of the the hooks of the show with someone who doesn't doesn't he doesn't physically you seem to belong in the ring is trying to get in it i mean what's what's the what's the basis of her character what's funny is uh if you look at the original show there were women of all shapes and sizes it wasn't just like these beautiful model type women cover girls there were like big girls little girls tiny girls you know and they put out a casting call and they didn't tell any of these women who were actresses in la what they were reading for. And then they show up and they basically are told that this is a women's wrestling show. And half of the women get up and leave like immediately. But some of the other women, they stay to hear them out. And Alison Brie is this down on her luck working actress who, well, she's not working. She can't find a job. And so she's like, I'm going to stay and hear this out. And she's a very serious actress. Like she, she gets into her character and she uh she's totally method you know so what hooks her is that she gets to be a character and she gets to basically become that character and that hooks her that's exactly what she wants to do in her acting career so she really kind of falls into this character and wants to become that character and it's it's uh pretty entertaining how they each come up with their characters and stuff because basically uh, the original Glow, um, they played on women's stereotypes or their race or whatever, and it's kind of can be un- uncomfortable. But at the time in the eighties, it was kind of funny, you know. Like, there's one girl who's, uh, you know, hey, she's from the Middle East. I know she's a terrorist, so she'll be a terrorist, and she'll talk about bombing America and stuff, and 
uh, it's just like, okay, that's kind of uncomfortable or whatever. (laughs) But they did stuff like that. Like they, uh, one of the funniest characters, there's this nice black lady. They want her to play welfare queen. And she's this black lady who's like, oh, I get, I use my food stamps. I, you know, I, I drive a Cadillac and it was just really uncomfortable and it seems racist, but they're like, no, people will love this character. You got to do this and stuff. So they, they each, there's this one Asian girl. They want her, you know, you're going to have, you're going to be a karate expert. She's like, I don't know karate, but it doesn't matter. You know, no one cares. It's very entertaining show. It's a lot of fun. And just to clarify, before we move off this point, this show would come on after Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah, basically, uh, it was like a syndicated cable show. I'm trying to think of what channel it came on. Maybe it's like a, a UHF channel, uh, but it would be okay, around. That a, makes sense. Yeah, so it'd be like around 11 a.m. Right when your final, you know, you've just watched Pole Position or something on CBS, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to turn to Glow. And one thing that was interesting about the series is I was waiting. I almost like. I knew it was going to set up them becoming wrestlers and it becoming a show, but the first season really is about getting the pilot episode made. So it doesn't get into them being, having a regular TV show on the air. So you have to prepare that it's all about the casting coming up with characters and the people's lives in it. So I'm, positive there will be another season then that'll be about them dealing with the first season of the show and people actually showing up because one thing about the documentary that it tells you is that some of the people who the guy who created it uh you know he knew people who had money who invested in it and some people said it was a tax write-off a guy who owned the riviera hotel in las vegas he could use it to plug all of his products uh, and so that, that hasn't come up on the show. So I'm sure they'll do, a, a you know, something, a spin on that, you know, somehow them wrestling in mm-hmm. a hotel and things like that. But, uh, it definitely builds up to it, them becoming the gorgeous ladies of wrestling. So I can't wait till there's another season. It'll get into that more. Because that's what's funny, you know, I watched this show at, you know, like I said, I was 13 or 14, and you definitely had your favorite wrestlers, and they had silly storylines, and, you know, I knew it was cheesy, I would watch it with my sister Vanessa and my friend Ray, my friend Ray was embarrassed to watch it, like, can we please turn it, because each character had their own rap they would do, and they would start rapping and to, about their character, and I was like, no, 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 because also, you know, I was at that age where it's like, you know, there's real pretty girls on here. I'm going to watch this. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. It sounds like it started the template of uh, Jason watching somewhat trashy reality TV shows. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I've always been attracted <laughs> to trashy TV one time or another. <laughs> and and uh, listeners of this podcast have benefited from it. Uh, yes, thank you very much. Yes, and I, I think that people will enjoy this show. Yeah, I never knew about uh, Glow or whatever, whatever the show was called. So uh, I, I definitely want to check that out because otherwise I would never have known about it. Make sure you're right up to your uh, the mic input. By the way, I'm right up to the mic. You were you were fading. <laughs> 
you were <laughs> you were fading in and out as you were talking, basically. But yeah, there was a lot of shows. Do you remember that? Like on Saturday mornings when the cartoons would end and then some hour-long program would come on, you would watch something no, like that? No, I usually wouldn't watch it. I would just turn off the TV. <laughs> yeah, you're, you sound much better now. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I highly recommend Glow. I told my wife, and I go, yeah, I already watched the entire season. She was like, I was going to watch that with you. And I was like, I'm going to watch it again with you. Come on. Oh, by the way, Mark Marin is in the show and he's he oh, plays really? he plays a uh, a, di- a film director who's directed a lot of schlock and he's supposed to direct this wrestling TV show and he is great in the show he's fantastic oh, cool. in the show I, I definitely need to uh, uh, re- remind myself or add that to my queue which is I, ever growing I almost think of him in the vein of of the Tom Hanks character in Little uh, of a League of Their Own. You know, he's this guy trying yeah. to wrangle all these women of different places, all walks of life. It's it's pretty good. Well, he's not a drunkard, is he? Oh yeah, he's big time drunkard. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> okay, Adam. Let's get into the big news this week, and that is Star Wars news. That's right. Uh, we've all known that there's been a Han Solo film being made right now, directed by Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the guys who did Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, they did 21 Jump Street, 21 Jump Street 2, and, uh, something else that I am... Lego Movie? Oh, yeah, the Lego Movie, of course, I can't figure about the Lego Movie, uh, well, they've been working on this Han Solo Star Wars movie. And honestly, when I heard that they were directing this, I was like, oh, yeah, that's a good choice. But apparently, there's been some problems on the film. And what's funny, do you remember that Josh Trank was originally hired to do this film? Or at least at the time, it was an unknown film. It was, uh, you know, Gareth Edwards was hired to do Rogue One and Josh Trank who was then at the time directing the Fantastic Four, who had directed um, that other film about powers and stuff. Why am I... Chronicle. Was that? Chronicle. Chronicle was going to direct this film, but he was fired off the film because he was having all sorts of problems or something. I don't think we ever got the true story of what was going on there, but he was not a good fit for Star Wars. Do you remember what it was? He went on uh, social media, Twitter in particular, and uh, like a day or two before the movie released, he tweeted something about how what's going to be released in theaters is not what he had intended. It's something to the tune of that, and uh, I think... I think that got him in trouble. So uh, clearly it was a movie that had problems behind the scenes or, you know, between what the, what he wanted to do and what the studio was trying to do. And uh, I think that that, that's a part of it. Maybe not the sole thing, but from, from a social aspect of it, that's, that's what I remember anyway, that, that shrink may have acted a little out of turn. Uh, Yeah. Clearly, frustrated but probably was not the best course of things but i mean maybe there's something else that we don't know yeah and uh lucasfilm kathleen kenny might have been like oh we're about to work with this guy he sounds like a brat or something you know a whiny brat 
So maybe she was like, maybe this isn't a good thing. So it was funny, uh, the other day, I think it was two days ago, Bill messages me. By the way, Bill has done this always, where he doesn't tell me the story. He'll just go, he goes, man, I can't believe that about Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And that's it. That's all he writes. And I'm like, what do, what about him? What, what is he talking? Okay. Let me Google Phil Lord, Chris. Oh my God. They were fired off the Han Solo movie. Like, uh, I have to like go searching for what this information is. And that's right. They were fired off the movie. And let me read this from deadline.com. This is the story that I found right away. Surprising news just now from Lucasfilm, which just posted at StarWars.com that the company has parted ways with Phil Lord and Chris Miller on the Han Solo film due to creative differences. Despite the change, Lucasfilm is sticking to the Memorial Day 2018 release date via Disney. The untitled Han Solo film will move forward with a directorial change. Phil Lord and Chris Miller are talented filmmakers who have assembled an incredible cast and crew. But it's become clear that we had a different creative vision on the film, and we've decided to part ways. A new director will be announced soon, said Kathleen Kennedy, president of Lucasfilm. Unfortunately, our vision and process weren't aligned with our partners on this project. We normally aren't fans of the phrase creative differences, but for once, this cliche is true. We are really proud of this amazing world-class work of our cast and crew, stated Phil Lord and Chris Miller. So they're basically both saying, well, it really was creative differences. Uh, it's just not going to work, you know. And I was like, dude, that's crazy. I was so excited to see what they did. But then I started reading more things. And there's articles from The Hollywood Reporter like, why the Han Solo film directors were fired. The real reason. So if you want the real reason, Adam, I'll read it to you, Okay. If you must. <laughs> Creative differences is a term that is often used loosely when a director is fired from a Hollywood movie. But it actually appears to ring true in the case of Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who have been let go by Lucasfilm chief Kathleen Kennedy from directing the Han Solo film. They always have to go the Star Wars spinoff that has no title, which is a, uh, about fan favorite character Han Solo. It's like, okay, you know, I'm shortening it. Sources tell The Hollywood Reporter that the style and vision of Lord and Miller clashed with that of Lawrence Kasdan, the legendary screenwriter behind classics such as Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, who also wrote with his son John Kasdan the script for the Han Solo standalone movie. Lord and Miller have comedic sensibility and improvisational style, while Kasdan favors a strict adherence to the written word. What is on the page is what must be shot. The creative clash, according to one insider, also came down to differences in understanding the character of Han Solo. People need to understand that Han Solo is not a comedic personality. He's sarcastic and selfish, said the source. Who is this source, by the way? The friction was felt yeah, almost right. immediately after the movie began shooting in February. Sources say, but the director thought it could be worked out. Kennedy, the producer and head of Lucasfilm, decided to back her lifelong colleague who shaped so much of Solo's character in Empire and Return of the Jedi and who had a specific tone in mind for the movie. The duo didn't feel like they had the support of their producer, Allison Shearmer who is acting as a Lucasfilm representative on the London set. 
Lord and Miller, who had relocated to London with their families for pre-production and production of the movie, were said to have been blindsided by the firing, which they learned about on Monday, according to one source, although another disputed that account. Really, we have no facts here. (laughs) One person says one thing, one says the other. Unfortunately, our vision and process were not aligned. Okay, that's the same quote I read before. Okay. Then, okay, Adam, this news comes out. Ron Howard is pit to pick up the reins of the Han Solo Star Wars spinoff, and he is going to resume production. While production isn't scheduled to resume until July 10th, Howard wasted little time in expressing his gratitude and his excitement to join Star Wars, the franchise. He commented on Twitter, I'm beyond grateful to add my voice to the Star Wars universe after being a fan since 52577. I hope to honor their great work already done and help deliver on the promise of a Han Solo film. He also opened up about the new gig at the Cannes Lions International Festival Creativity, saying, I've been a fan forever of Star Wars. It's gratifying to be asked to lend my voice to the universe. So many people involved in the Star Wars franchise are friends. It's already been in production, and there's a lot of really great work there. So, okay, he's taking over this film that's already filmed a lot. So, I... The more I thought about this, and I've read different people's comments on, you know, how do you pick up, like, a film and put your name on it that somebody else has already been making? I honestly, I don't know what happened between them and Kathleen Kennedy, which I think uh, Kathleen Kennedy has done a great job so far of running the Star Wars franchise. Uh, I know there's been talk of Rogue One, all the reshoots and stuff. That happens on films and stuff, but... Obviously, if you know something's not working out, it's not working out. Maybe they were the wrong choices. They were wrong about hiring them in the first place. I don't know. But I think it's really cool of Ron Howard to come in and say, okay, I'll help you. He's a pro. He's been doing this a long time. Firing uh, guys after five weeks on of filming and several weeks more to go, it could fall apart very quickly. Don't you agree? Sure. Do we know? I mean, look, all you've got to go with is stories with sources, all kinds of sources. Do we know for sure that Lord and Miller were fired or did they just you know, walk away from the project? No, that's the one thing that seems to be uh, pretty accurate is uh, in each story that they were definitely let go. And, you know, that okay. one story said they were blindsided. I've read some speculations, well, too, but it's all speculation that they did something that pissed off Kathleen Kennedy. So she was like, you know what? They're gone. Well, the, 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 of course, the very first thing that I thought of uh, upon he- reading about this was Edgar Wright and Ant-Man. And it's probably of no yeah. surprise that, uh, you know, Lucasfilm and Disney and Marvel are pretty much entwined with each with each other. Um, to me, uh, Miller and Lord have pretty much developed their own kind of signature voice, uh, their own way of doing things. And I'm wondering if their own approach is clashing, is clashing with. Uh, the kind of films that uh, Lucasfilm wants to make. It's it's 
what's a better way of explaining this? It's whenever people, whenever some people thought, well, hey, what, how cool it'd be if Quentin Tarantino or John Woo made a James Bond film. And, well, the end result would be something completely insane and not in tune with the movies that Elon Productions or Albert Broccoli's uh, production company would have been making. They yeah. want some consistency with the series of films that they're making. And maybe what Lord and Miller were doing was kind of a break off from that. And that break off was very uncomfortable to either Kathleen Kennedy or other members at Lucasfilm. So yeah. we only know so much, but maybe that's kind of part of the problem here. So, yeah, uh, I've heard rumors. I've heard, you know, people say in different stories that they were outright making a comedy. Like, this is what you hired us for. And it's like, we don't want a comedy. We want a Star Wars film. Sure, it's going to have funny moments, but we don't want a comedy. And it's like, well, why did you hire us? Kind of a thing. Um, and another thing is Ron Howard taking over directing and working from a Lawrence Kasdan script. I'm pretty positive it's going to turn out to be a watchable film. You know, I know it's oh. not the sexy choice. Like when you think, oh, Ron Howard. But I think it's a very safe choice for him to clean up a mess. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And it's, I imagine it's a hard thing to do because also you don't want to look like a dick taking these guys' jobs. But they're fired. They're gone. Somebody's got to come in and pick up the reins. And Ron Howard may be doing this as a favor. Kathleen Kennedy be saying, like, you know, I... You know, I got to tell you that uh, we need you. We need somebody with your expertise, the way you run a set, come in, pick up the pieces. Automatically, it's a cast. All I know is if I was a a young actor playing Han Solo or whatever, and I heard the directors were fired, you might panic a little. But when you hear that Ron Howard's coming in to pick up the pieces, you might be like, oh, okay, okay, that sounds good. You know, it's not like somebody who's never directed before or who's like Ron Howard's got a huge slate of films he's done. He's going to be yeah. a cool cat on the set. And it's be like, okay, I don't need to panic. Everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. I think he'll he'll make something that's very much in line with the movies that uh, Lucasfilm has put out so far. So. Um, yeah, I, I feel I also would have been really interested to see what Miller and Lord would have turned out. Uh, but, um, who knows? Maybe this is what's best for the company. Yeah, um, I, I, are you going to talk about the internet reaction to Kennedy in relation to this? Well, uh, I don't know a lot, but I did send you a story earlier this morning that I thought was just very dickish. The headline, yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the people that I follow on Twitter posted the same link, which and is uh, it's, from Screen it's Rant. Truly disgusting. It is. Does Lucasfilm need new leadership? You know, if Kathleen Kennedy, she's old school. Does she know how to run things now with these young directors? Um, uh, just whatever. Weird. It's no Lucasfilm does not need a uh, new leadership. Kathleen Kennedy's done a great job. She's a veteran of lots of huge films. She's worked with Spielberg and Lucas and all sorts of other directors. She knows what she's doing. She yeah. is a powerful person 
and she's got a huge knowledge base. You know, she knows how to get films made. And because something doesn't work out on a film doesn't mean she needs to be replaced. I think George Lucas picked the right person. He wanted Kathleen Kennedy to take over Star Wars. So I don't care what anyone thinks about her. She's not going to be replaced. Right. All of that has to stem from, no matter how you cut it, it all comes back to this stupid stupid uh little fact which is the fact that she's a woman and she's running things right i th- i think it's in so, good hands yeah. star wars is in good hands with her in charge yeah that's that's probably the little toxic anecdote related to this story but i figured i figured we were going to address it if only briefly because there's really not a whole lot you can say about some idiots on the internet, so... Right. Did you see other people, like, on Twitter and stuff, say stuff about her? Like, what is she doing, or something like that? Well, some of the people that I follow, whether it's Scott Weinberg, or there's a Twitter account called Geek Girl Diva, who's, uh, who contributes to uh, a, a certain Star Wars podcast. I forgot which one it was. But they would... Uh, they apparently... Uh, had interactions with people who were of that same, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, you know, is doing more harm than good. And clearly people who just, you know, just are trolls. Right. So, um, so the, the, that, that's the sort of stuff that I saw, but no, no one directly in my timeline said any, you know, horrible thing like that. And, you know, honestly, when I heard they got fired, I never once, thought of Kathleen Kennedy being irrational. I just, I honestly thought, Oh man, that's a bummer. Oh, that's a shame that happened. I wonder what's going on, but I never thought, Oh my God, what is she doing? You know? Yeah. And, and Miller and Lord have, uh, had a pretty good run recently. I mean, through not only their films, but I believe they created, uh, the last man on earth TV show on FX. So, They'll be fine. They'll find something else to do, and I'm I'm sure there'll be another Lego movie somewhere down the works. And you know, they're they've uh, they've been behind the two successful films in that series, so uh, they'll they'll be okay. But I mean, yeah, we'll we'll see what this turns out to be. What I think will be interesting also is you know a lot of this film has already been filmed. Um, and I, I have no idea what they will reshoot, etc. But when the film is out or coming out and they're doing the press junkets, I have no doubt in my mind that Ron Howard will say, you know, a lot of this film are those guys who got fired. You know, I'm not going to take credit for their work. I, this is, you know, we, I cast, you know, everyone was pros. We got this done and I'm really proud of the end product, hopefully. But I guarantee you that he will give them you know, he will give them their due with whatever they find. Yeah. And also, and I know they want, they say they want to keep to their release date. I wouldn't hold them to that. Yeah. They could always push it. There's no, I know that release dates are seem to be a big deal in the movies. Like they'll tell you like years in advance when something's coming out. Don't, you know, don't, uh, work everybody to death. Just, reschedule for christmas i'm really enjoying the whole star wars christmas thing <laughs> yeah just go ahead you get to go see you get to go see a star wars movie with your whole family it's it's perfect yeah so it, it's very interesting it is 
something like you immediately want to know what happened. And I guarantee you that those directors will talk eventually and talk all about it. They may not right now. Some people are saying they may go on to direct The Flash now because they actually dropped out of The Flash movie to make this Star Wars film. So nobody's been chosen to direct The Flash movie. Maybe they'll all jump back on that. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. I know that when this happened to Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright never was fired from Ant-Man. He chose to walk away before filming even started. And actually, it came out recently, you know, because he's got Baby Driver and he's doing press junkets for that. And he has explained why he left Ant-Man. Finally, he's actually talking about it. And I would like to read this story to you. Yeah, do it. Edgar Wright explains why he left Marvel's Ant-Man. The idea of a major falling out on a high-profile Hollywood project might seem unprecedented in the midst of the Han Solo controversy surrounding the directors, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, their departure from the Star Wars spinoff film. But that's not the case. Directors departing projects early on is normal. But there have also been a handful of times in the past when the creative forces behind a film has had to walk away from a project after sinking months or years into its development. Such was the case with Marvel's Ant-Man. When Shaun of the Dead director Edgar Wright departed the movie just months before the cameras were set to roll, Wright had been working on the film script for years alongside Attack the Block's creator Joe Cornish and had even completed a large bulk of Ant-Man's casting. Unfortunately, something just didn't seem to click between the director and Marvel Studios during production process. This week, Wright opened up about what caused the creative rift. I think the most diplomatic answer is I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie, Wright said in an interview with Variety. It was a really heartbreaking decision to have to walk away after having worked on it for so long, because me and Joe Cornish in some form, it's funny, to, it's funny some people say, oh, they've been working on it for eight years. And that was somewhat true, but in that time I had made three movies, so it wasn't like I was working on it full time. But after The World's End, I did work on it for like a year. I was going to make the movie. Wright then went on to explain how issues arose when he was asked to hand over finishing touches to people within the studio. A very different approach than what he was used to, given his career of personally handling creative decisions from start to finish. But then I was the writer-director on it, and then they wanted to do a draft without me. And having written all my other movies, that's a tough thing to move forward thinking. If I do one of these movies, I would like to be the writer and director, Wright said. Suddenly becoming a director for hire on it, you're sort of less emotionally invested, and you start to wonder, why are you really here? The split appears to have worked out well for everyone involved, as Peyton Reed came into Hellman Man following Wright's departure at the 11th hour. The movie garnered critical success and earned enough at the box office for Marvel to greenlight a sequel. Wright went went on to write and direct Baby Driver, which, on the heels of positive early reviews, could be primed for a big debut as it races the theaters June 28th. So basically, he wrote and directed it. Then they said, okay, we want to do a draft of the script. And he was like, I'm out, which I can understand if you're used to working a certain way. But I think maybe they should have prepped him to begin with. Like, here's what we'd like to do. We'd like to take a look at your script, maybe add some things or whatever. 
But maybe I don't know. Does that happen in this day and age in Hollywood where they don't communicate? They don't communicate enough. <laughs> it's it's hard to say, but I think quality control is really heavy and prominent with a lot of studios, especially with uh, a franchise like that. And uh, maybe Edgar Wright's too independent and too specific a voice to uh to really work within it and no one knew that until it was too late so uh, and and some directors are able to adapt like that um and uh i mean apparently somehow marvel got it to work with shane black who's about as distinct a voice and personality as you can get right but um but yeah i mean it's it's got to be a weird case-by-case basis where Maybe the studio has – maybe you're right. Maybe the studio doesn't communicate enough, and then when after so much time has passed and so much prep work has happened that uh, you immediately got, you know, quote, creative differences. So, yeah, that, that, really, that's what it sounds like to me too. I would really love to know the difference between Edgar Wright's script and the final script. Like – how much did they change, and was it, like, maybe in hindsight, like, oh, this wasn't so bad, like, maybe Edgar Wright, but I'm glad Edgar Wright went off to make his own thing. Maybe he's just not the right choice to direct a franchise-type movie. He is uh, his own thing, and he should make his own films, kind of a... Yeah, Oh, and I think that's probably going to work best to his benefit. I mean, uh, this uh, baby driver, which comes out next week, that's the first film he's not making with Simon Pegg or, or, or adapting from source material. That's, that's his own baby. And, uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> and, uh, th- that's, that's an exciting prospect. So, uh, so yeah, uh, I I mean it, it's it's all going to work out, and I'm sure that Peyton Reed will make a, a solid sequel to Ant Man, and you know all this will be fine. But uh, but yeah, I mean sometimes it just doesn't work out. I mean, what can you do? Right, and uh, I think that everyone people learn from their mistakes, and whoever Kathleen Kennedy chooses for the next Star Wars spinoff film, uh, maybe she'll. Uh, be more cautious or something. I don't know. I know that they were in that slate article, uh, screen rant article. Yeah. They were saying, you know, some people were thinking maybe Colin Trevorrow wasn't such a good idea because his new film has flopped <laughs> at the box office. It's like, come on. My whole thing with that, you know, and I said it on Facebook is Richard Marquand directed return of the Jedi. Okay. No one had ever heard of this guy. He directed a film called Eye of the Needle with Donald Sutherland, this espionage spy movie that no one has seen. And he was chosen to direct Return of the Jedi. Guess what? Didn't affect the film at all. And unfortunately, the guy is no longer with us. He passed away. But Irvin Kirshner, he directed nothing that said Star Wars film in his past. The Eyes of Laura Mars. Are you kidding me? It didn't affect Empire Strikes Back. Colin Trevor will do a great job. I, I mean, at times I've wondered, like, who you know, what do we know about Colin Trevor? He directed his first uh, indie movie, Safety Not Guaranteed. Safety Not Guaranteed is a great movie. I've seen it. It's a funny movie. It's a touching movie. Yeah. And then he directed the Jurassic 
Park sequel. It's a Jurassic Park movie. What do you want? You know? It also helps that Brad Bird recommended him to uh, Kathleen Kennedy. I think I think it'll be fine. I just think people yeah. just want you to click on their story and read like, oh, has Kathleen Kennedy lost her mojo or something? It's like, shut up. <laughs> Here's another annoying story, Adam. Someone is lying about it. whether Blade Runner 2049, will it tell us if Deckard is a replicant or not? Oh, oh God. So it's come to this. Blade Runner fans have debated for decades. Nobody has. Ridley Scott said that, and everyone, you know, some people were like, ooh, I was like, bullshit. And I've always said bullshit. He's not a replicant. Give me a break. Just because you add a freaking unicorn in there for a few seconds. Oh, that means he's a replicant. It doesn't mean anything. But anyway, uh, they've debated whether or not there was even an answer in the movie at all. They've debated who to believe. And when Blade Runner 2049 director Denis Villeneuve said that there wouldn't be an answer in the sequel, we made our peace. Well, then... (laughs) I love how you say his name. Ridley Scott's... (laughs) Guess what? Ridley Scott, the old man who won't shut up about all the alien movies he's going to make, he kicked the wasp nest all over again. Last year, Villeneuve... Villeneuve. How do you say his name there? Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Villeneuve said that Deckard, still being alive 30 years after the first movie was set, doesn't necessarily mean that Deckard isn't a replicant. He added that it is important to him not to mess with the mysteries of the original film. All of which was actually, you know, guess what? Harrison Ford is still alive 30 years later. He's not a replicant. Uh, All of which was actually nice to hear because it meant that much of what we loved about the 1982 movie would actually remain untouched. But now in an interview with IGN, old man Ridley Scott had to speak up again. At what point while making the original film did you decide that Deckard would be a replicant? Oh, it was always my thesis theory. It was one or two people who were relevant were... I can't remember if Hampton agreed with me or not, but I remember someone had said... Well, isn't it corny? I said, listen, I'll be the best effing judge of that. I'm the director, okay? So, and that you learn... What? By the way, bar- can barely follow what he's saying. You know, by then I'm 44 years old, and I'm no effing chicken. I'm a very experienced director from commercials and the duelists and alien. So I'm able to, you know, answer that with confidence at the time and say, you know, back off. It's what it's going to be. Harrison, he was never, I don't remember, actually. I think Harrison was going, uh, I don't know about that. No, he didn't agree. He did not agree at all with that. Yeah, and Ridley Scott said, but you have to be, because Gaff, who leaves a trail of origami everywhere, will leave you a little piece of origami at the end of the movie to say, I've been here, I left her alive, and I can't resist letting you know what's in your most private thoughts when you get drunk is an effing unicorn. Right? So I love Beavis and Butthead. So what should... What? So I love Beavis and Butthead. So what should follow that is... Duh. So now it will be revealed in the sequel one way or the other. What is he talking about? I'm so lost here. What what is this interview quoted? What's the source of this interview? IGN. So... Then the the writer says... Either someone is lying or the way everyone translated Villeneuve's original French interview is is wrong. Maybe Villeneuve Villeneuve 
wanted to wanted to preserve the surprise, and Scott just doesn't care. My gut says that the most likely scenario, but I don't know whom to trust here. Somehow the question isn't even, is Deckard a replicant anymore? We're back to wondering if Blade Runner 2049 will have answers, and just when we made ourselves content, content with the mystery. You know what? I don't even care if he's a replicant, honestly. If they reveal that, I'm just like, oh, whatever. This is sequel years later. Don't really care. You know, because it, I, I can only imagine the, the trailer looks amazing. The film looks gorgeous. It looks beautiful. This is a sequel I never asked for. So I'm just going to appreciate the film on its own. If they say Deckard is a replicant, I'm just going to be like, okay, well he is. But when I watch the original movie, I'm never going to think he was a replicant. You know what I'm saying? It's, 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 it's retconning, basically. Well, it, it, to hear Ridley Scott over all these years of decades of asking him what what Deckard is or isn't, uh, to me, I, I'm, I'm in the camp that it doesn't really matter because it's it's what the replicants do and and, and their struggle that brings the Rick Deckard character out of his funk. And I mean, you know, we all, we all came into this movie initially thinking he was going to play this hero cop, you know, killing these, uh, these robots or androids gone bad. But the problem is upon watching Blade Runner, you'll notice that Deckard does very little heroic things in the movie. And it's, it's through the process of the movie that, that, uh, that he gets brought out of his funk uh, definitely by the end with his final showdown with Roy Batty. So it's about him reclaiming his humanity. Right. uh, Where apparently he just drowned it out in alcohol and, uh, you know, whatever else he was doing at the time. So it doesn't make any um, sense that he's a replicant. They have a four year lifespan. Yeah, and, and and look, exceptions can be made. There's no really big reason as to why Rachel doesn't seem to have an expiration date, but, I mean, who, who knows? But, uh, again, the, the, the whole point of the movie is not, you know, you know knowing when you can die, but, I mean, the, the fact that you can one day expire is what gives that life that, that is what makes it precious and what, what makes it, something you should cling on to is for as hard as you can. It's more interesting uh, if he's human. Right. I don't understand what making him a replicant. That doesn't make it interesting. It just, it doesn't make it interesting. I don't understand. It just, it's a dumb idea. Ridley Scott had to me. That's just a weird, weird old plot twist. But the, the thing is, is that what Ridley Scott did was just mostly in terms of what, how he brought it forth in the movie, it was so vague enough that you could either go with it or not. But if we keep asking him his opinion on it, it's going to be accepted as dogma. And that's the thing that we want to avoid. Right. The, the fact that Gaff leaves origami at the end Never said to me he knows what he's dreaming because first of all the unicorn isn't even in the the movie that we've seen for years it was added later it was that Gaff had been there period because he makes origami things that's yeah. what the origami represent is that Gaff had been there 
And he said, it's too bad she won't live. But then again, who does that part? And, you know, uh, Deckard kind of nods like, okay, yeah, I got it. He was here. He didn't kill her. He's basically saying, you know, like, hey, I'm going to let her live. She's going to die anyway. But what he didn't know was that she didn't have a termination date or whatever. Yeah. And it really doesn't matter if she had a termination date or not. I mean, the fact that she gets spared. The fact that she gets spared is uh, is this – is that the movie ends on this whole, we don't have to solve our problems by just killing everything. Right. That would be, you know, even that, I know they added that later in uh, the narration, but say, I know the original ending or whatever, the director's cut, the door shuts and then the movie ends and it doesn't show them flying at the end. Uh, But it could be Gaff is like, you know, she's going to die eventually. We don't need to terminate her. You're obviously in love with her or whatever. Just go and enjoy your time until she dies or something. And then the movie ends. Uh, it's the, the kind of movie that doesn't need anything spelled out to begin with. Uh, for instance, the film isn't exactly deep into character analysis or character study. It's a very visual movie involving these replicants and stuff, but it's not a character piece by any means. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I'm just talking at this point. So uh, if you want to move on, we can. (laughs) Let's move on. Let's not scare our listeners away. Okay. This was interesting. Uh, This year's E3 had alarming security incidents. I don't know if you knew about this, but uh, E3 this year was open to the public. If you spent a lot of money on a ticket, the public could get in. Usually it's just press journalists who go to E3, right? And then they report on everything they see and all the games they play. And it gets us all excited. But, um, right. Let me just read this attendees walking in with badges obscured security, declining to approach an injured showgoer robberies, one allegedly carried out by security guards, no metal detectors, no bag checks. E3 2017, by many accounts, had significant issues with crowd control and security. This year's E3 Expo was the first in the gaming's trade show's 22-year history to officially open its doors to members of the public, selling 15,000 additional tickets and bringing a total up to 68,400 from 2016's 50,300. And my observation as a show attendee, it didn't seem like E3 had changed its structure much to accommodate the hordes of wide-eyed enthusiasts. But while the massive crowds were mostly just a pain in the butt, lax security put attendees and their possessions at risk. Security workers at the show, however, told me that security was intensified this year, raising questions about whether it wasn't enough or if some incidents are just inevitable in a show this size. Show attendees Brandon Sheffield of Necrosoft Games and Matthew Kumar of development studio MK Ultra told me about an incident in which they witnessed a man collapse just outside the convention center. His head hit the ground hard. Sheffield said that while attendees ran to call 911 and get security, the guard nearest to them apparently refused to approach the injured. Even when Sheffield said he witnessed the injured attendee begin to have seizure-like symptoms. It didn't appear that any of the security had been trained to deal with this situation. Essentially, for those first or five 
five or so minutes in spite of us having a door security with us with a walkie talkie in our line and shouting and in shouting distance were complete amateurs dealing with this guy. Nobody saw what happened. Nobody was around a medic of any kind. So we were just using our best judgment to keep the guy from dying. An ambulance and on-site medics arrived five minutes later. I also heard two reports of the theft at E3. Scott Swarbrick and Kevin Campbell of the independent development studio Milky Tea said that the two, two people grabbed the studio's laptops from the Dell stand where they were showcasing their game. One of them distracted the Dell employee, asking him questions about the hardware and directing him to one side of the stand. As we were all distracted, another person picked up one of the laptops and walked away. This, he said, happened twice in one day. While security tried to help afterward, they've yet to recover the laptops. And an even more disturbing story, an E3 exhibitor that wished not to be identified for fear of reprisal from ESA, the gaming industry trade group that runs the show, said that equipment was stolen out of its meeting room by security guards. Our meeting room was broken into the night before the show started by E3 security staff. A representative of the company wrote in an email, they stole a laptop, two consoles, and four headsets. They used one of our backpacks to get it out. Security had clear camera footage of the guards entering and exiting but because they couldn't actually see them carrying this stuff they gave us some bullshit excuse about it not being a prosecutable or enforceable action we're still pushing them for a satisfactory conclusion another representative of the same company told me that the security company in question had identified the guards who were allegedly involved said it would fire them because that's all they could do on the upside my reporting prompted the company that was robbed to reach out to their contracts at e3 again their contacts at E3 again, and they said they now have more support in attempting to prosecute the guards in question. They're still not happy about how all this turned out, though. If we attend next year, we're likely going to have to invest in our own security measures for inside our meeting room, which will increase the cost of attendees of this already expensive show. Security isn't just about making sure people don't bring things out. It's also about making sure people don't bring things in. With the general public now admitted, there's a higher potential risk of walking in with weapons or dangerous implements. This year, however, the LACC still had no metal detectors or bag checks. Just say, This actually scares me reading about this. I wouldn't want to be there after this. Just security mm-hmm. guards posted at entrances outside the halls near meeting areas. The ESA does not seem to believe this was a big security problem with this year's show. E3 was a great success from a security perspective. ESA's VP of Media Relations and Event Management, Dean Hewitt, said to me in an email, the show had minimal issues. Some attendees, though, have been talking about concerns since the show ended last week. In a post harshly critiquing E3 for lackluster security, Rami Ismail of indie development studio Vlambeer claimed that he was able to enter the show floor in at least three occasions without wearing his badge. Every time I was carrying a backpack that was never checked for his contents, it would be trivial for someone to bring any sort of weapon to the event and security would not be able to react fast enough in the hall to prevent anything from happening. See, I hate that this actually story gets out for anyone who might like, hey, I could get in there and cause harm. All right. It's like next year they need to step up security. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. uh, I don't know if you've been lit. And and I heard uh, discussion on this in podcast form 
from the giant bomb, uh, they, they usually post these huge E3 episodes. And this was a subject that came up, which in, and this was in regards mostly to uh, people getting in lines for games and hoping to uh, be there long enough to actually try some of these games that they were interested in. And uh, there's just not enough time, and the lines are so big that you may only have enough time for maybe two or three games. Right. But uh, they also talked about how the, the people who manage E3, who do the security and uh, the – and also the uh, the publishers and developers who show up their stuff, they all need to readjust and uh, think about the way that they uh, they coordinate and uh, and uh, run this show, especially if they're going to bring in public. I mean, they they kind of have to do that now. And uh, and look, uh, it doesn't matter if they have if they improve their security one way or another. Me personally, I would never go to one of these things. I just don't like, like you, I don't like being in huge crowds for stuff like that. But if you're going to, if you want to go to one of these things and you're okay to deal with being a drop in the sea of bodies just going everywhere, there needs to be a little bit more, uh, there needs to be a little bit more competence and a little bit more control. So as to, you know, prevent injury or any other kind of crime or whatever, and, and definitely to make a, make it a worthwhile experience for everyone who paid money to attend the thing. Right. They need to step up security for something like this. It's yeah. very important definitely. in this day and age. After we see what happens in in other countries and other parts of the world uh, where there's going to be some asshole who does something bad and we all have to see it on the news and wonder, could something have been done? And the answer is yes. In this case, I you saw know, and, and you're right. It could inspire some guy to go, Hey, I could leave a big bang at the E3 and the, and this, and, the, and this, that alone should inspire the people running this stuff to actually step it up with security measures. Right. Yeah, I saw Andrea Renee talking to Greg Miller about how, like, on a certain day, they stop looking at just your badges and they start looking at your ID, too, because people bring in fake badges. But she said this year they're just like, go through, go through, just wave you through. They just weren't even bothering. And she was just like, is that safe? Is that good? Or, and it's not, you know. Uh, Luckily, nothing violent happen you know people got some shit stolen but hopefully they'll step that up with enough people complaining (laughs) all right on to the next story adam sci-fi the sci-fi network orders a pilot for george r R. martin's night flyers i have no idea what this is but check this out sci-fi has officially ordered a pilot for night flyers an adaptation of game of thrones author george r R. martin's 1980 novella night flyers tells the story of eight maverick scientists and a powerful telepath who hoping to make contact with alien life embark on an expedition to the edge of our solar system aboard the night flyer a ship with a small, tight-knit crew and a reclusive captain. But when terrifying terrifying and violent events begin to take place, they start to question each other. And surviving the journey proves harder than anyone thought. Ooh. 
sounds like uh, something similar we've seen before, but, you know, if they do it right, it could be interesting, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Have you read that story by any chance? I don't know if you're... I have not. The only thing of Martin's I've read is, of course, the Song of Ice and Fire novels. Ah, have you read all of them? Uh, all of them that are available, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, you can't read ahead anymore, right? Well, well, the, you, you can have the show pick up the pace, you know, for you. But yeah, as far as the novels, yeah, that's that's weird. All right, Adam. Another news story: Dazzler will appear in the next upcoming X Men film. But you're excited. Dark Phoenix, <laughs> the upcoming X-Men film about the classic Jean Grey storyline, is going to be even more dazzling than other installments. EW can confirm that mutant pop star Dazzler, who not only can sing and dance, but also manipulate light, will appear in Phoenix. Fans might remember that X-Men Apocalypse actually had a deleted scene. No? Huh? I don't oh, yeah, when they're in the record store. Okay. Where Jean Grey... It's Scott Summers came across Dazzler's album at a record store, which was a great deleted scene. By the way, I don't know if you've seen that. I did, yeah. Turner, it's more fun in that clip than was in any of the movie. <laughs> I didn't like the fact that they thought. Didn't they? Wasn't there a show, a, a, moment, a scene of them coming out of Return of the Jedi and not liking it? Yeah, something like yeah, yeah. These kids are lame, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, there's no way they had that reaction. Turner revealed the shot on her Instagram page. Turner also made a 1989 reference with alleged folks to think that this image of Dazzler was Taylor Swift. Oh, my God. Casting notices for Phoenix hit the Internet weeks ago with several parts open for new actors, including one that sounds like Dazzler. For Phoenix, EW has learned Dazzler will pop up, but only in a spot. Dude, it's going to be another, like, quick flash Easter egg thing. Everybody calm down. All these X-Men films are mediocre at best. No reason to even get worked up about it. Do you agree? Well, there are some good, there are some good X-Men films. Well, I think X2. <laughs> I know that's not exactly, that's not exactly a fine argument in and of itself. Here's my, okay, the X-Men films are fine. They're never great. Yeah. X2 is probably the best one, the second one. But they're always just, okay, you know, more, more same shit, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah, Days of Future Past is my favorite. Yeah, that that's a good one. The most recent one was just like, oh, okay, you know, it had, it had some moments that were cool. I like the young kids, the young mutants, and their little repartee there. Uh, there should have been more of that. Yeah. Okay, Adam, our final story. Twitch is going to stream Mystery Science Theater 3000 for six days. I don't know if you're a big oh. tw Twitch viewer, Adam. Uh, I actually am quite a bit uh, from time to time. I'll be like, oh, let's see what's going on on Twitch. After airing Mr. Rogers, Julia Child, Carl Sagan, and the Power Rangers, Twitch is bringing viewers to the Satellite of Love with a stream of every episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. A press release from the popular streaming service calls it the most extensive collection of MST3K episodes ever assembled for a marathon, premiering in 1988 on a local. Oh, they got to tell the history of the show. I'm really oh, just. Yeah, By the way, um, 
the way you start every mystery science theater story is in the not too distant future. <laughs> but anyway, the show's first host, uh, Joel Hodgson, and later writers' room, Michael J. Nelson, and two puppet companions. Were, oh, they're still explaining what the show is. We all know, okay? The MST3K yeah. stream will be the latest in a popular and ongoing trend of non gaming related marathons for Twitch. But a first for Shout Factory, the corporate parent of Mystery Science Theater 3000. The company regularly streams MST3K marathons on YouTube every Thanksgiving, but this will be the first foray onto Twitch and on its new official Shout Factory channel. You can catch the stream on that channel starting at 12.15 ET on June 23rd. Wait, wait a second. That's today. Let's go check it out right now, Adam. No, we'll do that later. But anyway, you can watch uh, a huge thing. I got to tell my daughter. She loves old MSTs and the new MST. Well, Adam, that's all of our news stories. And you know what that means it's time for, don't you? Rotten Tomatoes? Yes, that means let's read Rotten Tomatoes. You say either. I say either. You say neither. And I say neither. Here we go. Adam, I don't know if you know a certain film came out called Transformers The Last Night. I think you're very aware it came out. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's, it's kind of hard to avoid the, the advertising. Currently, Adam, it is. it has 141 reviews counted, 22 mm-hmm. fresh, 22 fresh, 119 wow. rotten. So it's sixteen percent <laughs> rotten. Two days ago it was fourteen <laughs> percent. Yeah, it's gone up a little. So it's sixteen percent rotten. Audience score sixty one percent liked it. These movies always make money. I don't know why. The last one I saw in theaters, I felt like I had a lobotomy. My brain hurt. My <laughs> eyes hurt. I just wanted it to end. It was the one with the Leonard Nimoy voice and uh it was the oh, last. Oh, Dark of the Moon. Yeah, Dark of the Moon. That was the last one I watched, and it it was awful. It was so long, my butt hurt. So let's find out what <laughs> Pete Travers thought of the last night. Let's. Every time Michael Bay directs another Transformers abomination, this is the fifth. The movies die a little. This one makes the summer's other blockbuster misfires look like masterpieces. I give it a zero out of four. Wow. So we should check out the mummy then? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, hey, this isn't so bad. James Barrera (laughs) Darinelli of Real Views said that distilled to his essence... The last night is an orgy of incoherence, a sensory assault that suffocates the viewer, and a cavalcade of special effects incontinence. 1.5 out of 4. That was pretty good. I like that. I was a mouthful there. Yeah, good, good job there. 
Michael O'Sullivan of the Washington Post says, A movie that's cut like the world's longest and most tedious trailer, pinballing from scene to scene and rarely spending more than a few seconds on a single shot. One out of four. (laughs) Ebert said something like that all the way back to Armageddon. That guy should have tried harder. Oliver Jones of the New York Observer says, I am not going to try explain to explain the story after watching this movie. I may never try to explain another story ever again. Zero out of four. Okay. So this guy's <laughs> well, just lame, done. dude. This guy's given up on storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Terry of Deseret News Salt Lake City says it's hard to sit back and embrace the chaos of the last night. When you can think about similar big-budget action tent poles and reflect on how even in all their craziness, they just made a lot more sense. Two out of four. All right, so that's it. We've got to read a positive review of this movie, Adam. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Good luck. Armand White of the National Review says, once again, no, no, (laughs) the Transformers series verges on absurdity, but that's less important than the unique big screen spectacle of Bay's pop art and futuristic filmmaking. Go see this. I hate this guy. I really do. I'm going to struggle here to find some more uh, positive reviews. Uh, Let's see. Sonny Bunch of Washington Free Beacon says, Transformers The Last Night is kind of entertaining? And the way I assume <laughs> riding a roller coaster while on meth is probably kind of entertaining. I give it a four out of four. Wow, for a kind of trepidatious review, he kind of gave it a really good rating, didn't he? Yeah. Let's see. I want to hear a woman's point of view. Sarah Michelle Fetters of Movie Freak says, I'm not sure they're even trying anymore. Zero out of four. Okay. She's not even trying anymore. <laughs> okay. We want to see <laughs> hear some cleverness here. Emily Yoshida says, I can barely summon a feeling about the last night. If anything, I feel slightly worried about how little I hated it. Okay. That's interesting. So what does it mean she's she like just was disinterested? Uh, okay, come uh, on. Give me something good. Alan Hunter of the Daily Express says the last night is epic in length and filled with enough car crashes, gunplay, and carnage to please diehard fans and exhaust everyone else. I give it a three out of five. That's a positive review. Oh my god. Oh here's there you go. Peter Sobzinski. Absolutely awful in every practical, imaginable way. One out of five. Oh, okay. <laughs> and did you see the uh, the headline I showed in uh, Harry Knowles? His headline was, Harry wipes and flushes the projectable poop that was Transformers the last night. It's at least three flush loads of crap. Jeez. Is he clever, uh... Adam? Is that clever? For for Harry Knowles, probably for every, for everyone else's standards, no, not so not so much. I I, uh, I I followed someone on Twitter. He's a screenwriter by the name of Ben David Grabetsky, and he saw the movie opening night, I think, and he said he absolutely hated it. 
it, he said it's like the MacGuffin in a Mission Impossible movie. It's basically nothing. <laughs> wow. There's just like no point so, to it. Yeah, there's just, there's just nothing to it. I mean, I read uh, – I don't know if Scott Mendelson of Forbes is counted uh, among the Rotten Tomatoes critics, but he basically said that, I mean, there, there's just way too much exposition, not enough action, and uh, and, and, it, and it's weird for a Transformers movie, but who knows. I guess they're guaranteed to make a lot of money, but it's always funny to picture children sitting in this abomination that's so boring. Sure, it has incredible visuals and stuff, but you have to sit through so much horse shit to see it. You know? Yeah, it's like- and here's the thing that the Forbes article brought up. The last movie made a giant portion of its worldwide take in China. And uh, the domestic take for each movie past Dark of the Mood has been lower. So I guess they're releasing this hoping that China will make up the difference for this because I, I, I think audiences are starting to get you know sick of this stuff. They've got to. I, I, I can't do yeah. it anymore. And, and this depresses me because Michael Bay two years ago put out 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi. I actually think that's his best movie. Oh, and I never saw it. That. And it, it did nothing at the box office. Mm-hmm. Well, they, there has no robots transforming in it, I guess. Yeah, I know, but it, it's actually a good movie with good characters in it. So, uh, it, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Five movies in, they can't they can't figure out how to make these movies shorter or more coherent or just not unbelievably awful. I've seen the first one. I've seen was that the third one, the last Shia LaBeouf one? Um, uh, Yeah, Dark of the Moon was the third one, and the last one for Shia LaBeouf. It's just so tedious. Yeah, they're all two and a half hours and filled with filler. It just it it's just just exhausting. I think it's funny that they got Anthony Hopkins in this. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he enjoyed. I'm sure he enjoyed his paycheck. Yeah, uh, I don't know if I can read any more of these reviews. They're all just horrible, which you know <laughs> it deserves, right? Okay, yeah. let me read one more. Everything goes. Okay. Boom, crash, oomph, pew, wallop, zing, zat, and zoom for 150 minutes. It's terrifying. It physically hurts. It's so darn near incomprehensible, I almost asked for my money back. And I didn't even pay to see this. That was Chris Wasser of the Herald. That was pretty funny. I like that. All right. The movie sucks. Okay, we get it. <laughs> I want my money back. I got it free. <laughs> Just give me some money. You should be paying me. That's pretty bad. All right. Let's see what other, whatever movies came out. Uh, the Beguiled, the uh, new Sofia Coppola film that's a, I remember there's a Clint Eastwood movie based on the same uh, yeah. thing. Is this a remake this a of re- that film or is it a story, a book or something? I don't know. I'm kind of dumb. Uh, I'm a little unclear on that as well. Maybe, maybe it's a book or maybe it's a play. Yeah, I, I don't know. 
Let's see. The Beguiled is an atmospheric thriller from acclaimed writer-director Sofia Coppola. The story unfolds during the Civil War at a Southern girls' boarding school. It sheltered young women taking an, inner, an injured enemy soldier. As they provide refuge and tend to his wounds, the house is taken over with sexual tension and dangerous rivalries, and taboos are broken in an unexpected turn of events. Rated R for some sexuality. Ooh. Let's see. Leah Greenblatt of Entertainment Weekly says, Nearly every shot here is a visual symphony. All milky sunbeams shot through Spanish moss and white muslin flickering in candlelight. I don't know if I... Was that the right word? Muslin. Muslin. Yeah, we'll go with it. Muslin. Brian Lowry of CNN says, writer-director <laughs> Sofia Coppola has produced a small-scale movie that exalts old-fashioned movie-making qualities, yielding a refreshingly understated alternative to a sea of summer blockbusters. Okay. Peter Rayner of the <laughs> Christian Science Monitor says, a few of the performances, especially Nicole Kidman's as the lady in charge and Kirsten Dunst as the teacher pining to flee with a corporal, have some bite, but not enough to make much of an imprint in this brittle, vaporous chamber piece. I give it a C plus. Mm, well, <laughs> he's uh, he didn't like it. Just, just to Whoa. be clarified here, do you go? Do, do you add the "I give it a C plus" or "I give it four stars" thing to it? Yes. If I see that's the rating, okay. I'll say that. <laughs> okay, just wanted to make sure. Alex Welch of IGN Movie says it may not be Coppola's most thought-provoking or emotional outing to date, but it's a chilling and stunningly well-made one nonetheless. I give it a 7.9 out of 10. Dude, come up with an easier rating system. Jeez. 7.9? Come on. Armand White of National Review says... This adaptation of Don Singles' 1971 drama becomes another of Sofia Coppola's listless, spoiled girl forays. It sucks. Well, you go to hell, Armand White. Robin Clifford of Reeling Review says the production of the production is sultry and fogged in diffused light and overall does look good on screen, but the fault to paraphrase the Bard. Is not in our stars, but in the script. I give it a C plus. He didn't like it. No. A man should have directed it. Whoa! No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what else. Allison Wilmore of BuzzFeed News says the Beguiled isn't Coppola's strongest film. What, what, what is her strongest film, if, if you're going to say that? But it's her smartest and most skillful in portraying how the dynamics of a group of women can warp and weft under outside pressure. Weft? Is that a word? Weft. I guess it is. Turning from community oh, competition. Okay. So have you ever seen The Beguiled with Clint Eastwood? Uh, no, I, I, I've seen clips of it. I, uh, when I think there was an Eastwood 
uh, documentary documenting his entire career. It was based on the novel, on the biography that Richard Schickel wrote. Uh-huh. And there was enough clips of me. There was enough clips of it to kind of get an idea of what the whole movie was like. And it looks very interesting, but no, I haven't watched it. I really do want to see this version, though, because I like Sofia Coppola movies. It is currently 74% fresh. Hey. So, uh, awesome. The Big Sick. Which, uh, I think it's only out like in New York and LA or something. I don't think it's out here in Texas at all, but it's a Kumel Najani based on the real life courtship between Kumel and Emily Gordon. The big sick tells the story of a Pakistan born aspiring comedian who connects with a grad student after one of his standup sets. However, what they thought would be just a one night stand blossoms into the real thing, which complicates the life that is expected of Kumel by his traditional Muslim parents. When Emily is beset with a mysterious illness, it forces Kamal, I know I keep saying his name differently, to navigate the medical crisis with her parents. Beth and Terry, who he's never met, while dealing with the emotional tug of war between his family and his heart. And I've heard that this is really good. It's directed Me by too. Michael Showalter. And uh, I want to see it. I just got to wait till it comes here to where I live. Yeah, me too. Zach Sconfield of Newsweek says, There is comic gold in the cultural disconnect between Kamal and Emily's congenial, if politically incorrect, father. Alonzo Duralde of The Rap says, Those are a lot of plates for any film to keep spinning, and while it isn't... Wait, I hate when it picks up after the beginning of the sentence we don't get to read. <laughs> All right. Peter Rayner says to call the big sick the best comedy so far this year is to skimp its appeal it's a very funny movie with a surprising amount of depth and somehow the jokes and the seriousness heighten each other i give it an a minus <laughs> oh well good for you buddy kurt loader <laughs> says nanjiani's face okay now i'm just saying it weirder and weirder nanjiani's face has old hollywood repose but his eyes can melt into pools of concern with barely a flicker of transition. Well, I don't know. I guess that's a good review. Sometimes they highlight weird... He's uh, clearly in love with Nanjiani. Yes. Leonard Malton says, The Big Sick is bracingly funny, heartrending, and intelligent. A perfect alternative to the pirates, mummies, and other creatures inhabiting multiplexes this summer. No wonder it was the runaway hit of this year's Sundance Film Festival. I'm Leonard Malton, and I'm out of here. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I love it. But this time, it really works. All right, so I'm really excited about seeing that film. I just got to wait. But, Adam, should I say next week, Baby Driver, Edgar Wright's new film comes out, and we will both be seeing that big time, right? Oh, yeah. Basically, this whole weekend is included in the countdown to Baby Driver. Currently, is it's, it is sitting at 100% fresh, 35 fresh reviews, zero rotten. I know there will be a rotten one eventually, and I'll get hung up on 100%. like, ooh, keep it at 100%. But I, you know, I'm excited to see the film. I love, you know, as a fan of Sam Raimi, I love Edgar Wright's 
kinetic camera moves and editing and visual style and all that. So I'm really excited to see this. And, you know, he's always had a great use of music in all of his films, has he not? Oh, always. By the way, Armand White says that it's a curious coddling delight. <laughs> oh, he's actually wrote a review for it? Yeah. I was expecting him to write like the no the sole oh. uh negative review for it because he's a you know he he prides himself being a uh a contrarian because he's a bastard but whatever. Yep, not this time. He loves it. Not- All right. Yeah. Well, Adam, that's our show. Thank you so much for joining me. The audio got so much better. <laughs> Good. I I I kept my mouth I, I'm pretty much close to just kissing the phone, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You'll you'll hear on playback at the very beginning, uh, like it was kind of shaky, but you've made it consistently great for the rest of the show. So I applaud you for that. And thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's always great having you on. And we got to talk about Star Wars and what's better than that. Oh yeah, and and I know that you know this is a daily show, and there's and I kind of and I texted you on Facebook about you know you and Stephen talking about certain movies the last time the two of you were on like Alien Covenant and oh, Wonder yeah, yeah. Woman, and I kind of wanted to address Alien Covenant, but I mean this is a different type of show, and I can always do that later with a voicemail. I just got to be really careful about my alien covenant rebuttal because it involves spoilers and I want to avoid that right. after my big snafu with guardians of the galaxy volume two. <laughs> well, yeah, I still haven't seen the alien film. I mean, Steven's review or what he said about it didn't exactly make me want to get out there and see it right away. He was very indifferent yeah. about it. And frankly, you know, I read a lot of indifferent reviews about it. Yeah, it's and I, I and I'm trying to like like I said, uh, maybe I should just send you a voicemail where I can instead of trying to figure out what to say right now. Uh, I I just think that the key to this this in Prometheus is not trying to find a surrogate for like an Ellen Ripley like character, but you've got to focus on the Michael Fassbender character, the David character. Mm-hmm. And his relationship to these alien creatures, and that may not be what everyone's kind of going after, but the in terms of making Prometheus better, what Alien Covenant does is it continues this character arc by David. I think it makes what David does in Prometheus. I think it provides coherency. It, it kind of makes sense, but the stupid things about Prometheus remain stupid but uh alien covenant i think is a more well-rounded movie so uh but yeah i'll I'll send you a voicemail in the near future uh with a more carefully uh a care more careful take carefully worded take on it okay but i i really do think that there's more to more, more to alien covenant okay okay I do know I wasn't. So, a, you, you know I wasn't a huge fan of Prometheus, right? So, oh well, yeah, that's well documented. Uh, <laughs> uh, that is, you, you apparently love Alien. You apparently don't love Alien Three either. 
No, I do not. But I do love Aliens, which is a masterpiece. <laughs> no, I watched I watched the first Alien uh, last week, and it holds up beautifully. Oh yeah, it's a great film. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I am looking for it. I hope that you and Emma are still wanting to do like little movie minis of the first two Alien films. So uh, I, I I await in anticipation of that happening. Yeah, she's got, she's got this desire now. She wants to see scary movies. She already told me she wants to go see It in the theater when it comes out. And I was like, oh, are you wow. sure? And she goes, yes. I was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> oh, we'll man, that, that that looks, that that, tra- those, that last trailer looks so good. Yeah, I just can't, I'm just like, I'll be thinking about her the entire time I'm watching it, you know, like concerned about her. <laughs> My dad used to take us to scary movies all the time with no thought of whether it would warp us in any way, but I guess they didn't warp us. I mean, it's just a movie after all, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just don't want her to become desensitized or something. I don't know. Is it better to get that out of the way early or what? Well, I mean, if she's showing an interest in, she's, she's actually showing an interest in horror films, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's better to 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 uh, when I was maybe her age, her kind of to to let her see to let her see because some people love like the white knuckle fear that uh, that horror films can give off, and, and yeah. for a time I like that. I don't like it as much as I used to. Right. I mean, when I was her age, she's 13. I had seen Halloween one and two. I'd seen the Friday to the thirteenth movies, whichever ones were out. I remember Friday the Thirteenth three D. You know, I was seeing these movies, and it didn't feel wrong at all. Like you shouldn't be in this theater alone or with your cousins or whatever. But it just seemed like no big deal. So maybe it's just kind of a thing where I'm overprotective or something. I should just let her watch whatever she wants. I guess I don't know. Did you get to see any of the Evil Dead movies when they were in theaters? Uh, no, Evil Dead 2 was a rental that my dad forced me to watch. Oh, I kind of mentioned that on that Darkman episode. <laughs> He's like, no, you're going to watch this. Trust me. And I was like, I don't want to. Because at one point I was very into horror movies and I was very desensitized. But then I became a real wimp where I like, I don't want to watch scary movies anymore or something. I don't know what happened overnight. I guess I'd seen one too many. <laughs> I guess uh, I I uh, I avoided horror films until I was I was in my late teens, my late teens, and then watched a lot of the classic stuff like you said, like Halloween, Evil Dead, the Evil Dead films, Hellraiser, The Exorcist. Yeah, uh, I and I did see quite a few in the theater, but I mean, I I don't remember the la- I think Alien Covenant may have been the closest thing to like a horror fo- horror film that I've seen in the theater. For a very long time, so I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I. That's maybe I just don't like being uncomfortable. Whenever I go to a rated R movie now, there's always a shitload of horror movie trailers that are like the haunted houses and all. It looks like the same movie over and over again. You know, right? Uh, it looks like they're just making the same type of horror movie over and over, and it just doesn't look interesting at all. But, um. I just, I loved like, you know, Jason and Michael Myers back when I was a kid. 
I don't know what the deal was, but uh, one day I just lost interest, I guess, and moved on to another thing. But I liked the Hellraiser films. I liked the Cenobites and all that stuff. And even like yeah. when Heather and I first started dating, you know, we'd go see Scream. You know, we'd go see horror movies when they came out. But then after The Ring, she was like, I'm out. <laughs> you know, I've said that before. Like, <laughs> The Ring, she was just like, I'm done with scary movies. Forget it. I'm, it's over. No more. When that bitch wow. comes out of the screen at the end, no way, man. Out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Adam. Uh, everyone, go to etlandfill.com. There you can uh, experience all of Entertainment Landfill. We got all of our recent episodes. You can click on the show archive. And what will they find there, Adam, on our show archive? You will find... Uh you will find uh, pretty much what every, or at least uh, every episode of Nowhere and Mulberry, uh, and they are remastered. Is that is that a correct way of saying it? Uh, no, not they sound, remastered. They sound better. Oh, no. okay, not remastered. Okay, well, <laughs> they are definitely uh, easier to find. Uh, they got the show notes uh, updated with them, mm-hmm. and uh, here's another thing that I would add. Um, okay. I speak, I, I, I text Jason all the time, uh, in, you know, for information about the show, if there's a drop that I don't understand, or if there's an episode that I may have missed, Jason always points it out to me. So if you're, if you're curious about the show's past and you don't know where to start, I would, you know, send Jason like a text or post a question to him on Facebook, on the entertainment landfill, uh, group group side i mean the the it's a vast collection of uh audio goodness i must have listened to five or six uh uh episodes of nowhere and mulberry uh in this past week and that includes like the dark man commentary the cloverfield episode i listened to again oh, cool. that massive four hour best of episode <laughs> it's it's it, it, there is just so much there's still, there's so much to go through and and it it really kind of excites me that there's so much I still haven't listened to so um so yeah uh, the the archive it, it, that it's available again and that it's easily it's easy to look up uh, what episodes have what segments and if, if you want to find out what segments like say Adam from the Bay area is a guest on that's listed. So it's, it's, it's an impressive thing and it's worth being a Patreon subscriber for. Oh, thanks Adam. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I want to get back to, uh, Jay Shrim's, uh, movie companion, but also I want to get back to the Chuck series companion. I'll have you know, Adam, I just watched the first episode of season three, getting back into the swing of things. I needed to get back into Chuck. Uh, It uh, (laughs) cheers me up when I'm down and uh, I can't wait to get into season three. Yeah, I saw that Facebook post of uh, Chuck and his full beard. He's probably got cheesy like what 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 was what was the snack he was eating? I forgot. It was like cheese balls, cheese puffs. Or... Well, he's probably covered in cheese balls, and he hasn't bathed in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> that was I'm crazy. looking forward to it, man. Awesome! I can't wait to get into that. And guys, uh, like Adam said, if you're interested in, 
in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com slash landfill. I need ya. I've lost some patrons. I want want to get some back. If you guys want some uh, cool exclusives like the patron update episodes or uh, more Jstrom movie companions, I'm doing my top 10 favorite movies of all time. And what's funny is, uh, you know, I it's kind of like, what do I do next? I think I have it nailed, Adam, what I want to do next. And wasn't it funny? Okay. I don't know if you heard the last episode where uh, Stephen kept trying to guess what it would be. And I'm like, stop trying to guess. <laughs> I'm not yeah. revealing it. So stop guessing. It was kind of funny. But I can't wait to but, get more into that. But guys, as always, feedback, it inspires me. It keeps me going. If you want to send some emails or voicemail, send it to nimpodcast at gmail.com. I'll love that. Join us on Facebook and the you know, uh, Entertainment Landfill Fan Club. That would be awesome, too. Thank you guys so much for listening. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. I can't wait to talk about Baby Driver next week. It's going to be great i i think we're gonna have a lot to go over and oh it's just gonna be a whole big old geek love fest that's what i'm predicting awesome but guys thank you so much for listening what are you waiting for get out there watch glow on netflix play some video games by the way i've been playing injustice 2 it's pretty awesome on the ps4 and i'll see you next time later adam Take you later. All right, everyone, that's the show. Please be sure and put your seats in the upright position and throw all of your trash and shit away. Now this is podcasting. All right, Adam, thanks a lot, man. Oh, it's always a pleasure, man. I'm so sorry about the the sound quality issues i've got to either figure out you know what the problem was or maybe i just need a new phone i mean i've had this thing for like two years or something i I either need that or i need to replace my freaking laptop (laughs) i i i'm in need of new technology man it sucks yeah i hear you i hear (laughs) you But, you know, it's no problem. I appreciate you uh, joining me on the show. Uh, We got through the sound problems. It was no big deal. But, you know, that's another thing is, like, when you've been podcasting for this long, there's no more panic in me. I don't panic anymore or anything like, oh, my God, Adam, we can't do the show like this or anything like that. Uh, (laughs) It's cool. Back in the early days of the show, I was so uptight about things or problems. I would get, you know, upset or whatever. I've learned that it's cool, man. It's all cool. And we're doing this for fun after all, right? I used to get worked up so much about things, but I guess over time you just cool, you know, and you just calm down. But Oh yeah. I'm, I'm really glad uh, that, you know, I had another opportunity to broadcast with you because I had one of the longest, hardest work days and uh, immediately went home, fell asleep and kind of woke up just a little bit to check my phone and like, oh, yeah, I'm recording an episode. I need to wake my ass up and probably should go get some food, despite the fact I won't be able to eat it while we're recording. But, hey, oh, I got no. that, you know, I got that checkpoint. <laughs> and by the way, that Cloverfield episode, like the last 
10 minutes or so. That's, that's utterly insane. I don't know how you did that and just not have like a psychotic episode putting that all together at the end, but I, I loved it. You know, what's funny is I, I always regret one part of that and I wish I had done it yeah. and I just kick myself. It's when we're supposedly getting the helicopter and we're like, Oh, we're going down. You know, we crash. I should have added Steven say, a rescue helicopter has crashed <laughs> and I did it. Oh, it drives me nuts that I didn't do that. That would have oh. made, made it perfect. Wouldn't it? But you made it, you made it worth it by telling it, telling everyone's Freddie Forks is you are for Freddie Forks' show. <laughs> oh, that Freddie Forks stuff is so funny. It really oh is. God. I, I loved it. I love that uh, oh, yeah, Foggy's got uh, an important there, he's got an important voicemail for us and then it's another Freddy Forks. It's like how is this important? <laughs> yeah. uh, there's this one drop near the end. I, I and I and I I'll send you like the the timestamp on it and I'm wondering where it's from. I, I think it's during the DVD section where Bill's talking about some weird uh, horror movie and uh-huh. he. He's talking about, I think he says, like, they're eating infected flesh or something, and all of a sudden, Foggy plays the sound of, I don't know if it's Miss Piggy or someone going, oh, my God! <laughs> and everyone starts cracking up, and I'm cracking up along with it, so. Oh, there, I think I know what that's from. It's from a newscast where a guy was doing, like, a weather report and a big one of those big water bug type cockroaches crawls on him and he goes oh my god and like he freaks out seeing the bug crawling on him while he's on live on the air and he goes i am so sorry bill who i guess is his director or something but also i use that that drop so many times of i am so sorry bill and then he goes oh my god it's pretty funny i love it is that archived on YouTube? Because if it is, I'm hunting that down. I'll find it. Like bug crawling on weather guy. Oh or my something god, like that. that's hilarious! <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. But that's what's funny. If you go back to the early shows, eventually you'll run into that episode where I go, "Hey guys, I have this funny clip I want to play you," and it's that guy. And then the drop just gets played from then on for the rest of time. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I loved it, man. I, I I truly did. Awesome, thank you so much. You got me thinking about freaking dark man more 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 than I, more than I ever thought I would. I mean, because if you didn't talk about if if dark man wasn't part of the commentary, I might I might not still be even thinking about dark man at all. And I'm actually still considering uh, picking up the 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 two disc Blu-ray from Shout Factory this weekend. I need to pick that I, up. Uh, I hate myself for not having that yet. <laughs> I just have the yeah, HD DVD and it's just the movie only. Yeah. There's this great little video place called vintage stock that has it. And they, ha- they, they have most of the shout factory scream factory releases. So, uh, I should, I should definitely just go in and pick it up because the extras look really good. Awesome. I want to see extras. Cool. All right, man. Yeah, that he's got like a commentary with Bill Pope and other stuff like that. So, how funny is it that he went 
from Darkman, then did The Matrix. <laughs> well, I know he worked on some things in between there, but I just love that he did Darkman first. Yeah, and he's did. I don't know if he did Shaun of the Dead, but I know he's worked with Edgar Wright on every movie he's made since Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and it's true, yeah. Erica World Police. <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. You remember a while back when uh, Edgar Wright put out his list of his favorite 100 films? And I was, people, he was like, I'm, he would like tweeted like, okay, people, these are my favorite films. Your favorite film does not need to be on the list. I don't understand why people are getting upset. But I was like, oh, yeah, that's stupid. And then I looked at the list and I was like, where the hell's Darkman on the list, buddy? <laughs> you know, I was getting pissed too. How can Darkman not be on here? But at least Evil Dead 2 was on the list. Because oh. you could see in that in early, Edgar Wright's early work, like uh, especially Spaced, he was heavily inspired by Sam Raimi. Oh yeah, you can see it yeah, in his um, And then, of course, he became his own kind of beast with his own style, which is fantastic. Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's Sight and Sound or Empire. One of those British movie magazines have asked filmmakers for like their top 10 movies and evil dead 2 is one of his top 10 so that's no that's of no surprise awesome. that evil dead 2 is a big thing for him and then he talked about that back when kevin smith did his whole i think it's called smoothie makers or whatever and he interviewed uh edgar wright and edgar wright loved the video nasties or and, and evil dead was one of those things so oh, i nice. think he took to that movie big time very cool i've got to hear that is it in an archive somewhere or? it's it probably is i i'm not sure what i i think it's like a different feed than the smodcast feed so you're you probably have to go through like either itunes or i think it should be archived on the smodcast website somewhere Cool. Right. I mean, I got iTunes, but yeah, he he talks to what's the who's the guy that made Donnie Darko? Oh, uh, uh, Richard, Richard, somebody. I think I've actually yeah. heard that. Richard, Richard Kelly. Yeah, Richard he, Kelly. He interviewed yeah. Richard Kelly as well, and and that's a good episode. So you yeah, smoothie funny? makers. I I think it's called smoothie makers. I, that's that's part of his. Uh, you know, I, I've got to put smart in the title of every damn podcast that I make. So <laughs> yeah, I recommend this, hunting those movies, hunting those uh, podcast episodes down. In this day and age, I can say that Edgar writes whatever he puts out. I get really excited about. Oh yeah, I agree. Awesome. I love talking about movies and games with you, man. Thanks a lot for joining me. And you oh, welcome. Anytime. Go, go eat your dinner. I feel so bad for it. Is it cold now? <laughs> Just sitting there. I guess I need to go eat too. But uh thanks a lot, man. I you bailed me out. I didn't want to go another week without doing a show because I couldn't do one last week. But you know, at least I had the E three show to put out though. Yeah, and I, and I enjoyed that as well. That That's also something I listened to while, while waxing floors this week. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I, I went on right. E3 Overload, <laughs> just listening to all the podcasts I could. Uh, Giant Bomb had such long shows, I couldn't get through all of them just because they were long listens. I got through the last one. 
I like that Phil Spencer interview. I thought that was good. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I love that one. I wish I had a job like Phil Spencer. That would be fun. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I'll talk to you later. Have a great weekend. All right. Thank you. Kick you later. All right. Bye. Bye.